Hey, everybody. This is It Came From New Jersey, um, the podcast where we talk about music from New Jersey. I'm uh, one of your hosts, Pete. And I'm Bob. How's it going, Pete? It's going all right. Um, I just ate some dinner. I made. What'd you have? I made a burger with an egg on it. Um, What'd you think? It was great. I mean, that's always how I do it. But it was one of those nights where you look in the refrigerator and there's like just enough stuff for like you know, a meal, you know, like I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I need to go grocery shopping really bad, but there was like some lettuce that was about to go bad and like a few veggies about to go bad. So I made a little salad and a, and a burger with an egg. Well, that's a lot more than I had. I have to confess, I had a uh, refrigerator, not incident, but kind of a confrontation today. Um, I was on a, a trip about a week and a half ago, came home, nothing weird. Everything's good. Got some food, uh, filled the fridge last week. Everything's fine. But like three or four days ago, I'm like, weird smell, huh? All right, well, whatever, you know. Then kind of didn't go away. And then today was the reckoning. It was like, okay, got to find out what this weird smell is. Now, what I believe it is, is that um, it's my my significant others uh, had bought a, a salmon steak or whatever it is like you know so i don't eat i don't eat fish uh so i don't like salmon i don't like the way it smells and uh she bought it about a week ago when we filled the fridge i think it went bad um because i could smell it very strongly through the package and it looked a little weird so i think that's the culprit but uh, it didn't stop me from having to do about an hour of cleanup with that fridge today. And it's, <laughs> it's largely back to, to a good place, but we'll see. I think tomorrow morning is going to be the true test if I walk down and I'm like, uh, I'm going to have to like, I don't know what I'm going to have to do. Disinfect the entire thing. It's going to be, uh, I, I might have a seance. I'm not sure. Yeah, you might have to. I feel like a week is a long time for salmon. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I don't I, know anything about fish, and it seems like a long time. I like fish, but I, I I usually buy that shit and cook it like day of, or like maybe I think that's what you're like supposed to, to right? Yeah, yeah, right. Like like that's got a small window, small shelf life. So, um, well, I know everyone came here not only for the music, but for the uh, refrigerator and uh, meal talk. So, welcome. Yeah. And uh, Pete, what what do we got up for today? Um, so at the end of last week's episode, we said that we were going to talk about Yola Tango. Um, we are going to talk about Yola Tango, but we're not going to talk about it this week. Um, you know, we've been getting a lot of feedback from everybody, which, you know, thank you to everybody who's been writing in and engaging on social media and following us and all of that stuff. Um, we love the feedback. We, you know, really appreciate everything. So, um, just that, you know, reminder that you get on every podcast. Um, if you want to rate us on iTunes, um, that really helps us. If oh, you yeah. want to follow us on social media, um, we are at it. Uh, it came from NJ Pod on um, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Yep. And you can always write us an email with you know any of your thoughts or feedback at it came from NJ Pod at gmail.com. Um, so we've heard from a lot of you. It's great, but we've been hearing so much that we thought it would be a cool idea to you know, actually kind of take a break, um, you know, from your regularly scheduled programming and yeah. um, talk, you know, actually share some of the feedback that we've gotten on some of the records that we've talked about. 
So yeah, I'm pretty excited for that. Week. Yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty amped for that. <clears throat> I um, what you said is exactly right. Uh, if if anyone has a chance and would like to go give us a five star review on iTunes, that really really does help us. Um, so thank you so much for listening and supporting us, and of course following us. Um, I don't know if I expected us to get as much kind of like um, written feedback or emails or messages as we've gotten, but I know we've both gotten stuff personally also to the podcast itself. It's awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, like, like Pete said, it, it, some of it's been so good that we have to share it. I also wanted to take a minute and kind of decompress and like breathe. And uh, as someone who doesn't drink wine either, but like, I'm, I want to, you know, what is it called? The, the sommelier does you let the, the wine breathe. Yeah. That's, you know, kind of do that for these last couple episodes because um, I hope it gave people a little bit of a feel of, of the breadth and depth of what we want to do. We're really excited to talk about all kinds of music. I think, you know, our most recent episode, the, the SZA control episode, that I would say is outside of my comfort zone. I don't know about you, Pete. Yeah, somewhat for sure. Yeah, yeah. So like, um, it's been really cool, and that's sort of the exercise for the listener too. Um, the Yolo Tango record that we're doing next week, which is Pete. I think it's. I can hear the heart beating as one. That's it. Is I'm going to confess. Other than the Bruce Springsteen record we did, other than uh, Born in the USA has been the record I've gone back to the well on the most of this recent batch. So, nice. uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that episode, but regardless, um, I hope you're discovering new music or even if it's not something you like, something that you enjoyed listening to and kind of going through this journey with us. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, we both know full well that everybody kind of, you know, everybody listens to music with a different ear. Everybody has, you know, different albums might remind you of different times in your life. You might have different experiences with different bands. So like, you know, uh, this should be obvious, I hope, but like we in no way claim to be authorities on any of this. And, you know, we're always looking for different people's takes, you know, older, younger, like whatever your experience is with it. That's super interesting to, to both of us, you know? So that's, you know, part of the, the reason for this episode, with that in mind is just like, I, I loved hearing kind of these different stories about, you know, people's experiences, but the records that we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, I, I, this is a little bit off script, but I actually was, um, somebody shared with me their feelings about gaslight Anthem. Um, that's our first episode we did. Um, and I thought it was kind of interesting. So, I mean, the, if you don't mind, let's start there just on a kind of off the cuff conversation here, Pete. Yeah. I feel like we did a good job with that. I think we did is there, okay. Do, is there anything you would have done differently on our analysis of the Gaslight Anthem? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, I tend to be too hard on myself with everything I do in life. So, you know, in my opinion, I would have just loved to have kind of a, fuller idea of their catalog um, just so that I could have all of the context that I needed to talk about that album. But at the same time, I think it's equally as interesting to just kind of go in blind, you know, and talk about what you're hearing. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly how I felt too, was um, I actually, you know, 
it's not something I've gone back to. But I've thought about that record a little bit in the time since and been thinking about checking it out and returning to it just because like there were so many people who were really kind to us about it and who were like giant fans. And that was the person I was a little worried because we were not easy on that record. Yeah. You know, Um, so I was a little nervous that people who who just love the band would be kind of uh, who could have been turned off by by our critique, but they all kind of caught the energy. And uh, a buddy of mine, Ryan, hit me on Instagram and said, "Hey, man, just listen to some of the podcasts. I was excellent." Um, as a huge fan of this band since the beginning, when they were playing with Vision, I thought you guys did a wonderful critique. I'd highly recommend listening to the final album they put out, Get Hurt. It's night and day from the 59 sound. It actually turned a lot of people off since it was so different. The first song, Stay Vicious, sounds like grunge. Uh, check it out. If you check out anything, give that song a listen. Looking forward to the next episode. So that was just like like an early kind of little note that I got. And it made me go, okay, kind of like breathe that sigh of relief. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, this is one of the people who, you know, when I see them on social media, it's a lot of gaslight, you know, um, a lot of gaslight anthem quotes and lyrics. So that, that was a really nice feeling. And uh, I hope people understand as we go through and we hit things that when we're cutting songs off records or saying like, oh, you know, this song, uh, you know, a good friend, a mutual friend of ours, Pete Dave was, uh, was sad because I think we dismissed one of his favorite songs off born in the USA. Okay. But but that's the way the cookie crumbles. You know what I mean? That's how it happens. Yeah. (laughs) Um, which by the way, I want to mention that we did a Twitter poll about, uh, having to do with one of the conversations we had on the Springsteen episode. Yes. Um, Basically, the question was dancing in the dark, yes or no. And, uh, you know, if you listen to the episode, you'll know that I'm personally not a fan. Bob is a huge fan and dances around to it every day uh, of his yes, life. That's true. how he starts that's today. True. Um, not wrong. Yeah. And, Bob, it turns out that 75% of our audience is with you. I was a little bummed out about it. If I have to be honest, I'm surprised it's not more. I think there was. <laughs> I think there's some silent uh, dancing in the dark fans who also just didn't get a chance to vote. Perhaps we should have extended <laughs> that. They might have been busy dancing in the dark to the song while the Twitter poll was running. Um, it's a likely. fantastic song. I, I honestly, <laughs> I think we're gonna have to really slow that song down and break it break it down because I want to know what what doesn't hit you about that song. It's just so good. Are you not hungry? Because I'm just about starving tonight. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> so, so, um, so I was right. That's good. I feel good. Feel vindicated. Uh, but again, our, our our real you know jokes aside, it's cool. If you don't like that, there's going to be plenty of stuff that people who are listening disagree with us on, and that's what we want to hear from. Right. So, um, any other broad thoughts? you know, before we actually dive into the heavy feedback we got, because that I think is going to stir up a lot of conversation. Any other uh, overarching things? I, I actually, you know, 
I really enjoyed our episode with Brian Gorsigner, our buddy who uh, sings for the Nightbirds and uh, is a pretty big Misfits fan. And that was just kind of fun having another voice. I think we're going to probably do a little bit more of that as we yeah. move forward. Yeah, definitely going to try to do more of that. That was a lot of fun. Um, hopefully we can have Brian on again um, and then, you know, as well as other guests. So that's definitely part of the plan for the future. And, um, but yeah, overarching thoughts. I, you know, I don't have too much. I just, uh, I think I said everything I want to say. I'm just, you know, excited about all the feedback we've been getting. So, you know, keep it coming. Um, I love all the album recommendations everyone's been sending. We have oh, yeah. a very long list of albums that, you know, are on the docket to cover. So, um, just know that you, you know, your emails are being received. I'm taking notes and, uh, we're going to hit all that stuff in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got. <clears throat> suffice it to say, New Jersey's made a lot of notable music, so uh, that's pretty cool. Um, do you want to cool. kick us? Do you want to kick us off? Yeah. So this, the first um, message that we got, um, it actually kind of um, relates to what you were saying before about the Gaslight Anthem feedback that you got from a friend. So this is a personal friend of mine. His name is Andy Kochman. Um, I've known him, you know, since I was a kid, he actually lives in London now. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So he was listening from abroad. Shout out Andy Kochman. Yeah. Um, and he wrote about the Gaslight Anthem first. I think we have, you know, more from him later, but Andy wrote, you guys totally nailed the Springsteen side of it. And the great question of what would this album sound like with a different singer? I've always talked about this because while I love this band and it's given me so many great memories during that that time of friends, family, and shows, Fallon's vocals never got better. They never showed range either. The follow-up album would be their best album if there was a different singer. The Killers comparison was dead on. And the throwback references to Petty and the Counting Crows were interesting because after their third album, they did away with it altogether and started just blatantly ripping off, and not in a good way, early 90s rock and grunge. It's a band that has a frenzied punk first album that sounds like Rise Against, their peak second album, a decent third album, which suffers vocal and production issues, and then two follow-up albums with maybe five to six songs of them combined that are good. So that came in from Andy Kotrin. He is... It seems even more critical of the Gaslight Anthem than we are, but yet, you know, he's like a super fan. So, right. Um, interesting feedback there. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> first, thanks, Andy. Uh, that, that actually was really cool because, you know, I wonder if the average Gaslight Anthem fan is as critical of Fallon's voice uh, because I feel like that's a pretty big draw. I feel like. Brian Fallon as the singer, vocalist, songwriter, lyricist of the band is a huge draw to Gaslight Anthem. And I mean, especially now, I feel like people might be getting into Gaslight Anthem through his like solo stuff. He has a right. significant solo career at this point, right? Right. And and you know, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know that you know, his his vocals Like it's it's so funny. Um, like Bruce Springsteen, and there, there's so many like great American rock singer songwriter types, lyricist rock and rollers. You know, I don't think anyone's going to accuse Bruce Springsteen of having the best vocals, um, but he's got an interesting voice. Uh, Bob Dylan 
definitely, at least to my ears, is a voice that's like, it's an acquired taste. Um, and there's, you know, you can go down the line and I'm, I'm American is kind of whatever, but like most have this weird uniqueness to their voice. And so I almost wonder if the question shouldn't be if they're better or worse, but do they stay as interesting as they go along? And maybe that's where it goes. And like, if musically, and, and like, I actually think it's going to be fun to go and visit a couple more Gaslight Anthem records yeah. as we go through to kind of reference back to 59 sound. Yeah, same. And see where they evolve. Because if they get less interesting, I could see that being a bummer or or if they don't fit along with the music as well or if as the music moves and they're saying it's more like 90s rock or grunge and what I could actually see it, and this is sound unheard, sight unseen, I could see their sound evolving into that post-grunge kind of like the era where it's like, well, are Gin Blossoms grunge? Are better than Ezra grunge? Is Third Eye Blind grunge? Is Matchbox 20 grunge? No, 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 no. So it's that kind of post-grunge rock vibe. And I could see Gaslight evolving to that. And if you don't, if you're not doing something unique vocally there, it couldn't get lost in the shuffle as well. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I wonder about that. So first thing, I think that's either the second or third better than Ezra reference we've made on this podcast so far. So that's, uh, that's interesting because that's definitely a band that nobody thinks about. Um, but I mean, <laughs> good living with you. Good. The song good is, was like, and Desperately Wanting was an all right song. Okay, they're from New Orleans, Louisiana. So if we do our Baton Rouge road trip, we can Yeah, that'll can have to be a road trip episode. Yeah. Um, um, they were yeah. such a buzzbin band. They should have been big. Anyways, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Bob's still mad about it. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I mean, the thing about the vocals, like the songs on um, 59 Sound are super strong. You know, I, I, yep. I think they're really strong songs. So, I mean, when you have a really strong song, I think that, I mean, quite honestly, like the vocals don't, or the vocals don't really have to be great. You know, I mean, if they are great, it's going to help the song be even better. But if it's a great song, I think that, you know, as long as you have a solid vocal pattern and everything, you know, kind of doesn't sound harsh to the ears, it's going to be fine. Um, yep. You know, so I can imagine that in later records, if, the songs just generally aren't as strong and like that energy isn't there. Like it's going to, the vocals are going to stand out more as not being, you know, as good because you don't have such strong backing. Right. So yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see when we listen to the episode or listen to the records, but um, I'm excited to go in kind of blindfolded. I'm not, I'm not doing any, uh, any secret gaslight from listening on my end. No, 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 no pre-review. No, no sneak previews on our end. Um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I also think about it like this. There's such a weird feeling when you write a record that got so big and so cultish, like Fifty Nine Sound. And from what I understand, there's fans who really attach to the band and really like the other records. And I'm sure there's people who would pick some of their other records as their favorite. You know, as as we heard from Ryan there. But at the same time, this record was the, you know, Alpha and Omega. Yeah. 
And I think that was the case while they were a band. And I think that's so weird. It's so weird to feel that as a band, as artists. And I wonder what that does sonically, like in the songwriting process. Yeah. It can kind of push you to go, okay, well, we don't, we're not trying to rewrite that record. We're not trying to rip ourselves off and we're not trying to write a sequel to that. We want to keep moving with our sound and, you know, and, and kind of what we touched on, on the, the show as well was, I don't, I think they also didn't want to be a Springsteen clone, Mm -hmm. you know, at a certain point, those constant references can be tiring. So, um, yeah, I think we'll be revisiting Gaslight Anthem and I, I hope we get as much feedback as we got this time. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Andy, for the for the email. Okay, um, so we're gonna move on. We have a, uh, a a buddy, a pal, Dave Martin, wrote in, who's got a little bit of a history and uh, in music, um, and somebody whose musical taste and opinion I appreciate. Uh, just very broad palette, and even in like relatively limited interactions, has recommended me stuff that I've checked out and been like whoa, this is cool. So so uh, hearing him uh, provide feedback is important to me. He wrote in about Monster Magnet. <clears throat> and here's what he has to say. Stoner Rock. Monster Magnet pretty much predate almost all of those bands. And the Stoner Rock tag, post-dated, really comes from their 25-tab record. Sleep and Caius don't have records until 1991. So Monster Magnet beat them by a year. I also think since they went big and were a somewhat successful major label band, they don't get as much credit for their place and how that scene that scene developed. True. My memory is that they were originally marketed as grunge pre-Nirvana, or at least the NYC version. Scum rock seemed to be a term that people tried to make stick. First single was on Circuit Records, who were also the home to Surgery, STP, Julie Caffrit's post-pussy galore all-female band, and they were supposed to put out a hot shoot cop record i think the money all went up someone's nose and the label folded anyways monster magnet seemed like a vital part of that scene that was happening concurrent with seattle not a reaction to it for instance legendary new jersey fanzine flesh and bone if you look at that you see that formerly punk and hardcore folks everywhere were starting to embrace older styles of rock super inside baseball but the importance of caroline distribution late slash label can't be overlooked at that time, Caroline was Sub Pop's distributor, and they saw all of that stuff blowing up. Primo Scree, who put out the second Monster Magnet 7-inch single, was a Caroline-funded indie run by one of the guys that worked there. I'm not sure if they were already signed to Caroline when that, Caroline when that happened. Another factor, and you touch on this, but dudes but dude were already old and had been through the major label system once already. Seeing through that lens, you have to see a lot of their moves as very calculated. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Lots to unpack there. Yeah, let's go in. So let's uh, let's start. So at starting the top. at the top, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's absolutely right. <clears throat> they and I think we we might have hit this a little bit, but they deserve more credit than they get. They were doing this sludgy, you know, heavy rock that was dirtier and grimier than anything that happened in the seventies. Yeah but was siphoning that energy and they don't get, they don't get credit for it in the way that sleep or Caius or even other bands in that world do. Um, 
Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I think he brings up a really good point about Sleep and Caius not having records till 91, Monster Magnet beat them by a year. I mean, that's something where, you know, that period in time for me is just kind of in my brain, it all just kind of folds into one period of time where it was all happening concurrently, which I guess like a year is concurrently. Like, it, you know, bands were existing, bands were recording and writing all at the same time. But um, it is interesting to think of Monster Magnet as like, kind of one of the very very first of that like kind of burgeoning genre you know no 100 percent. and i mean <clears throat> let me find this the very first sleep seven she's right came out on off the disc records pete yeah volume two do you, you're familiar with this i am yeah and I'm- uh off the disc is more famously known for putting out the uh the infest records uh a Oh, uh, right. Power right, violence right. band from yep. California. And so them doing this, I actually used to have that Kiss single. Um, but I, I think Monster Magnet was probably a much more fully formed idea. You know, um, for example, like Holy Mountains 92. Well, no, yeah, they're, they're there. I, I just think Monster Magnet doesn't get credit. Additionally, there's some pre-Monster Magnet post-Shrapnel um, Windorf projects in the late eighties that, um, that a couple listeners had messaged me about, and I wish I had them at hand, but, but I don't think they ever got anywhere, but they had, these guys were formulating this thing, exactly what, what he was saying, which was this, this world of punk and hardcore guys who are really embracing like a heavy rock sensibility, um, kind of strained through this, you know, grittier, um, post, you know, post hardcore has its own sound, but post punk rock street level attitude, you know, yeah. that, uh, that this is kind of dirty, bluesy, heavy, gritty rock fuzzed out, you know? Right. And if there's stuff like that going on in the underground, you know, while they were bigger, they're obviously going to get overlooked because they're already kind of in this different echelon. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's totally, totally valid point and probably true. I mean, people wouldn't think of them now as like in that stoner rock category because they were more or less being marketed as like being associated with grunge at the time. Right. Right. And, you know, know, like I, I think this, if there's anything we attempt to do is that I would put them in that bucket. You know, I think there's a monster magnet kind of, Monster Magnet and Associated Acts um, family tree that you could really get in. And like, if you spin off of, of, of them, there's a lot of bands that are very clearly in that world. Yeah. And, um, you know, if anything, they might be the East Coast root of it, you know, um, just given all of the side projects. Uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty amazing to look at some of the other bands they've done and, and we're working for i mean atomic bitch wax is a band who i've been thinking about a lot lately who i haven't listened to in a while but like that's a band who has a couple really good records yeah um so we actually I, just got a request for uh to cover an atomic bitch wax record so that's on the list as well awesome awesome i think yeah yeah there's and they still, I, I mean, I know that they had Monster Magnet crossover from the beginning, but yeah, that it, first, they, the first two, I I really like, and and I think by three, I was tapped out, but like, I actually would really 
be into checking out a lot of their material. Yeah. Let's so, do it. So yeah. So shout out to Monster Magnet and and what Dave gets into here about Caroline Distribution. This maybe isn't the right podcast, but we might need to grab Dave and talk about this because he's so right. Like it's hard to explain how important Caroline Distribution was to independent music on a national and global level. Right. Um, they facilitated a lot of indie rock punk metal hardcore grunge college rock like they were just doing a lot of music stuff that didn't have a home elsewhere and it it breathed life into it right um so uh, yeah he's he's dead on because it's uh it's really interesting to see that and you know and the idea of also monster magnet knowing like having been through the system i think when shrapnel signed to a major they got chewed up and spit out pretty quick and um you know up in smoke (laughs) with their chances so yeah i mean about the distribution thing i think that's totally worthy of its own episode because i think yeah like at this point you know we have SoundCloud, we have Bandcamp, we have Spotify, we have all these things. There's any number of ways that you can find bands when they're coming out. But, you know, at a certain point um, in time, it was all about distribution. If you couldn't find the records, no one's going to hear about your band, you know? So um, that's uh, that's totally worth diving into. I'd love to do that. Yeah, and, and we could even extrapolate it to a larger conversation about <clears throat> what distribution means and when distribution tipped. Because having worked in stuff in the mid 2000s distribution was still important you know i i was doing my own sm- very small record label and getting my records to the right distributor and kind of encouraging coaxing pushing them to push it really helped and i mean when i say that there's no underhanded nature i was just trying to give them the right tools to push them and how much of a difference it made when you did that versus simply just like screaming into the void you know right right um and then you know just this last point to touch on you already touched on it but the you know the idea of kind of having a calculated um you know strategy for going into like or i guess dave windorf having a calculated strategy for going into his relationship with a major label with monster magnet since he had already done it once before yeah that to my knowledge um you know through conversations that i've had with friends who are you know associated with monster magnet and the band um it was calculated i mean he knew exactly kind of where he fucked up with shrapnel and was committed to not to making sure that didn't happen again you know so so yeah i mean live and learn right absolutely i mean exactly exactly cool um keeping you yeah this is me so keeping it going on monster magnet um i got a text message from my very good friend tim cronin um and who is someone that we'll definitely have on the pod in the future um he wrote and said i just listened to the magnet episode really solid some good points i never even considered a couple of inside baseball like points we got a lot of inside baseball i like that i know me too um shrapnel played new york a lot and actually toured some making out making it out to chicago and the south um and playing boston a few times Nice. Vince Eli of the Psychedelic Furs produced that EP. Wow. Yeah. And Michael Alago, who signed Metallica and White Zombie, um, signed Shrapnel to Electra. Wow. 
Yeah, interesting. Um, Daniel Ray, who ended up playing on a bunch of Ramones albums and Phil's next band, Blitzspear. There we go. Was kind of like a scummier East Coast Guns, Guns N' Roses. <laughs> and then he says, I'm surprised the Melvins didn't come up. So, yeah. You um, know what? I'm surprised the Melvins didn't come up either. They're another band when it comes to like the dirty, heavy rock uh, that conversation doesn't steer there. And, you know, maybe blame that on us hosts. Yeah. I'm not the biggest Melvin's head, but like they, they're a, they're a heavyweight at this table. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Actually see knowing Tim, I, I think he was directing that at me because the Melvin's are like a top five, like Pantheon band for me. Um, and somehow I just, I don't know, didn't come up. Where, where do you, I mean, as far as the Melvins go, what is your int- entry point? Where do you, where would you point people to start? I mean, I think the easy start is something like Houdini or Stoner Witch. Um, those are the records they did on Atlantic. Um, so they were like kind of their major label era. Um, just because if you like kind of 90s heavier, you know, uh, I'll, I'll say grunge. I don't want to say grunge, but you know, they right, were, yeah. they, they were lumped into grunge the same way that, you know, monster magnet were lumped into grunge. They, they really don't have that sound, but you know, I guess it was an easy label. Um, but you know, personally, I really, really like the, the super noisy earlier stuff. Um, I would say Lysol and eggnog are two great ones to start with. If you want to get a little noisier, Okay. But yeah, I mean, they have, they have such a vast catalog and that's like why they're fun for me. You know, they have a lot of different sounds and a lot of different eras. So I think it's cool. Absolutely. How would you compare them to Monster Magnet? It seems like they probably had a lot of similar influences. Yeah. Um, I think they're, they're, I mean, it's hard. Drawing from the same well is like a weird thing to say because it's a pretty big well. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you know, Melvin's to this day will cover, you know, anything from like the wipers, you know, like super obscure, like Portland band, you know, from the eighties to, I don't know, like Alice Cooper to, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, the jam, you know? Um, right. And, and I'm, I'm saying for sure, those are records in uh, the majority of the guys from monster magnets record collection. Right. For sure. Yeah. So I think they both definitely pull from a lot of different, Wells, I think that the Melvins, um, I guess the, the careers actually, now that I think about it, no, the Melvins have had a longer career than Monster Magnet at this point by about a decade, I think. But yeah, I think um, so. But uh, the Melvins, I think, have they definitely vary their sound more, but they're a band that will put out a record that sounds like a 70s rock record as kind of like a goof. You know, yeah. and then they'll put out another heavy record, whereas Monster Magnet, I think, has been pretty consistent with, you know, some some like kind of mild experimentation here and there. Actually, I shouldn't even say that because he's done like remix albums that are really, really psychedelic and wild. Right. Um, but he's he's I think the, the Melvins are noted for how how far they color outside the lines. Yeah, exactly. You know? Whereas I think Monster Magnet is always kind of staying within a certain lane. Um, yeah, but th- like they're innovating and changing and evolving, but like m- the way the Melvins did it is a little bit different. And I think that's that's singular for the Melvins. It's not a dismissal to any other band. You know? Yeah, yeah, not at all. So that's cool. All right. Well, I'm I'm I, I also am looking at Vince Eli. Um, Man. I love the inside baseball here. 
Yeah. That was so good. So, I mean, <clears throat> not long after putting together and being a part of those psychedelic first, first few records. And I mean, he was there. He's, he's a forever member. Um, I'm just trying to see how far it was from love my way. Um, pretty in pink was right before this. Oh, wow. So he, he produced their major label record. So now I'm going to go listen to talk, talk, talk and, uh, and compare it and, and see if I can find the shrapnel self-titled Electra <laughs> record and see, uh, see if I can hear anything on it. Yeah. yeah. Love my way is in 82. So, wow. Good for him. That's awesome. Okay. So and the Michael Lago thing. Um, oh, that's yeah. interesting. If you, there's a documentary on him that it was great, but I don't remember what it was called. Um, but I'm sure if you look up Michael Alago documentary, you can find it. It was really interesting guy um, who was in New York and involved in a lot of um, bands that you're definitely familiar with. But this guy like kind of tied everything together and you know brought these brought these smaller bands to major labels. So yeah, I believe what you're looking for is. Who the fuck is that guy? The fabulous journey of Michael Olaga. Exactly. So he signed, yeah, exactly. Metallica, White Zombie, Nina Simone, John Lydon, Cindy Lauper. Yeah. So this guy had his hands in everything. Um, quick background: He began sneaking out of his house and going downtown to frequent legendary New York clubs, CBGBs, and Max's Kansas City. He formed the Dead Boy Fan Club as a teenager and soon after became the talent booker at the Ritz in the East village. 24, he became the A&R executive that signed Metallica and went on to work with the misfits, Cindy Lauper, Nina Simone, and John Lydon. So, uh, we, uh, we've got a few things to talk with, with, uh, Michael Lago about. So anybody knows him? Oh, and his, his, Oh, this is so funny. Uh, Drew Stone directed this documentary about him. Okay. So, uh, Drew Stone from, um, yeah, he played in some punk and hardcore bands, including Antidote. So, oh, there we go. It's pretty funny. All right. So we're going to see if we can reach out to him. I also, um, I also really liked that he mentioned, um, Blitzspear was kind of like a scummier East coast guns of roses. So just the, the consistency we have here of scum rock, you know, mentions of scum rock. I like that. I do too. And I just think it's, <clears throat> we have to remind ourselves and also audience that, the way music worked wasn't the same. Regional sounds were so different in 1990 than than now in the way music got shared, the way communities formed around music, that often there were these odd parallels in underground music where, you know, as, as Dave Martin, who we're going to get back to here, um, as he said, you know, there's this like, oh, there's this, these guys coming from this one place of punk music but also looking back, looking backwards at like seventies rock and saying, Hey, let's kind of revisit that and kind of pull that apart and put it through our new, our blender. But that's happening in different places. So you're kind of getting different flavors of the same dish. You know, it's, it's red squirrel, black squirrel kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, I always find that amazing. And, and, you know, maybe, As the show continues, we'll we'll even do some comp- compare contrast because it's like to listen to Monster Magnet and compare it to Sleep, super different things. Pulling from a very broad, similar well, but picking different strains to pull at, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I love that shit. Okay. Thank you, Tim, for the email. 
Thank you, Tim. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so Dave continued. He actually hit us up about the Misfits as well. So he says, I do think that the passage of time and their incredible posthumous successes warped how people view the band and the fact that there wasn't really a space that existed for them to become a hugely popular band at the time. Great point already. If you think about it, Kiss were a huge band when the band started, and the record industry didn't seem interested in trying to develop another image-slash-stick-based band, especially as the turn of the decade approached and Kiss's popularity started to wane. Pin in that. A case in point would be how long it took Twisted Sister to get any industry traction when they obviously wanted it and did all of the things that a band looking for a major label deal would do, like concentrate on becoming as big as they could regionally instead of nationally. The Misfits did none of that. The other part of this seems born out of by the passage of time. The other part of this that seems borne out by the passage of time would be the ego slash stubbornness of Glenn and Jerry. I imagine getting those two to agree with each other, let alone an A&R person, would be highly improbable. I also think that, also I think that the band's references were a bit too obscure at the time. Glenn was too deep into it. His mix of B-movies, comic books, and back issues of famous monsters, the FM logo is undoubtedly what Glenn based the classic Misfits logo on. No, he's dead right. When I got into the Misfits, 85, 86, Walk Among Us was already hard to find. And the window of time when it was not in print seems so short now. But at the time, it seemed seemed unattainable. I did buy Halloween, Evil Live 7-inch, Earth AD in stores as new records. I also remember when Glenn made those white vinyl copies of Three Hits from Hell, and there was a short-lived store in Pittsburgh where the owner had a 25-count box. I own, I bought one? Question mark, exclamation point. Yeah, he, he probably should have bought a few more than one because uh, he could be funding some college funds across the country at this point. Yeah, um, exactly. Dave, thank you so much. Very, very cool insights here. Um where do you want to start on this one? Cause there's so much to tackle. So, I mean, I like the idea that, um, you know, the, the, I guess let's start at the beginning, the point points about kiss and twisted sister. Yes. Um, you know, how, you know, they, the major labels had kiss. They didn't really want to put more effort into v- developing these like sticky bands. Um, because undoubtedly the misfits would have been seen as, as that type of band, right? Yes, and and as he noted, the popularity of Kiss had started to wane. I mean, look, I'm I'm as big a Kiss fan as a 38 year old can get. Just about now, I know there's a few of us in this age range, but like maybe it's just recently. But me and a couple of my friends talk about Kiss on a a, a pretty frequent basis right now. Um, <laughs> Anything happening for Kiss post-1980, it's a little dark. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a golden period for them. And it's sort of like their star burned so brightly that it just couldn't, you know, like it just couldn't survive. Um, what and, Kiss record came out in 1980? I'm looking right now. 1980, I mean... By 80, we're talking, there's nothing in it. It's unmasked. unmasked, yeah. Right. Like, Dynasty is 79. That is, like, 
the last bastion. Like you get some people who will talk about the elder. Like yeah. I could talk about the elder, but like lick it up is 83. What? Yeah. What? I've never even listened to dynasty. I think, I think I stop at, uh, what's the record before dynasty? Um, uh, in, there's double platinum. like the collection. Not destroy. Uh, alive to love gun. Love Gun. Love Gun's the yeah. last one I've ever listened to. That's before. To. Oh, Alive 2 is a miracle. It's just incredible. Alive 2 is you wanted the best, you got the best. The oh, hottest okay. band in the world. I've, actually, I've heard that one, yeah. It's perfect. So I guess it's, after it's, Alive 2, I stopped. Yeah, it, and it's like, I have to say that because Alive 2 matters. That matters so much to me. Um, I'm getting heated talking about Kiss right now. Um, <laughs> I know a, a Kiss super fan who gave me this whole rundown on... Uh, all the Kiss albums, and I feel bad because I haven't actually gone through with the deep dive, but I promise, Ken, I will at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my deal. Is I think what I, I and maybe we can look at this like, but Kiss's crescendo is probably seventy six to seventy eight, and then it starts to plummet. And it's not like they're not big; they're still selling out concerts and playing big venues and all that. But the sheen has faded. Right. You know, like unmasked. Uh, I can't even, I'm not even going to talk about this record. Like it's dumb. Um, <laughs> like I'm looking at the track list. All these, no, nope, nope. Do not want. Um, so he's right. And I also think <clears throat> there's other bands and I, we didn't get too heavy into this who were doing a little bit of the costuming and sticky stuff, but it was all on that lower level, even though some of those bands might've been ahead of misfits um, in the late seventies for sure. And it just, but it just never bubbled. It never percolated. And I think exactly what he said, there was a general malaise and a disinterest mm-hmm. because they saw, Hey, kiss did it, but that felt like lightning in a bottle. We're not going to capture another kiss. And if we force it, it's going to be, it's going to go nowhere. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's really the pin I wanted to talk about was how quickly the kiss popularity faded. But it's not that they faded. It's just that they're active records like, yo, up to Alive 2. And I mean, Double Platinum being a greatest hits, you saw that everywhere. But like, yeah. All that, the the five, you know, Hotter Than Hell, Kiss, Dress to Kill, Rock and Roll Over, and Destroyer. Like, yep, sounds good to me. Like, <laughs> that's plenty of material to dig into, pick apart um, for, peop- for fans. And, like, they had people discovering them well into the 80s. But going to that, not Lick It Up, not The Elder. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. Um, and I also really like the mention of Twisted Sister. That's that's funny because um, Twisted Sister, it's both fair and unfair to call them a one-hit wonder, but they're, for, for all intents and purposes, a one-hit wonder. And they ended up having a little bit of a lifespan in the metal world, but people know Twisted Sister as we're not going to take it. Yeah, on a major label level, that's what they were. That's what that band was shooting for. They hit it. It's pretty remarkable. 
but it was, you know, it's a sharp peak and it was a long walk up and it's been a slow decline down, which good for them. Like, I think they, they ate a lot of meals off. We're not going to take it, you know? Oh, for sure. So, so, so kudos to them. Um, I highly recommend their Christmas album. Is it good? Yeah, it's fun. That's, that's what I mean when I say good with Twisted Sister. Is it fun? Um, I like it. I also think he's totally right is that I don't know if we were able to highlight this enough and we probably should. And I'd love to have other people who are around in the eighties. Part of what I think built their mystique was the inavailability of the records. They were being bootlegged pretty early on. So sometimes you could get their records, but even early ish, their stuff was a little bit collectible. Now, now their records are selling for $20,000. Yeah. Um, it's pretty uh, wild. Records that a, f- a decade ago were selling for a few thousand are now well into the five figures, and that is amazing. Um, so, I mean, I really, I think it's hard to explain how they exploded as almost a brand come the '90s, right? Yeah. You know, like like in our age range, Pete, like the Misfit Skull is one of those it's like the iconography of music. Yeah. It's right in that fabric along with like the Led Zeppelin logo and the black Sabbath, like volume four. Like it's just one of those iconic images, but in the eighties there were shirts and that, but it was still coded and it was some, it was like, it was like you had to know the secret handshake to get into the club. And like Dave saying, he had to seek out walk among us and he, he, you know, he, he didn't quite find it for a while. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I feel like Misfits tattoos, like, you know, there are people out there with Misfits tattoos who probably never even really listen to the Misfits all that much. And that's not even a judgment call. It's just to show that, like, you know, it's such an iconic logo. It's more just it's representative of, you know, whatever it is that you want it to be representative of, that you're familiar with the the logo and the band, you know. Um, It's like Black Flag bars at this point. You don't have to be like a diehard Black Flag fan to get the bars, you know, it's just kind no, of, it's just like, Hey, simple. check it out. This is this cool thing. It's almost, it's almost symbolic for something that is other than just a band logo. Right. So, so Dave continued and I didn't want to leave this part out. I thought this was a really good part and I wanted to isolate it. Um, and he kind of goes into influences, which I thought was great. Influences. Elvis is the easy pick, but I wish people would mention Roy Orbison as well. Roy showing up later on the Less Than Zero soundtrack seemed at the time to be Glenn's work as well. But maybe it was the genesis of Rick Rubin's Johnny Cash records. Mm. Surely the Black Flame slash Glenn Danzig split single is the best Danzig release. Interesting. Yeah. Take. Hot take. I I wonder if it went deeper. Like, do you think Glenn has any Charlie Feathers records? It does seem impossible that he would listen to music for fun, relaxation, etc., I don't have any anecdotes about him saying he liked music during this era, but I distinctly remember a good friend who was pen pals with Glenn and booked all of Sam Hayes Pittsburgh shows that Glenn told him he had been listening to a lot of fetus Jim Thurwell records. Also on that note, I'm sure he had a negative approach record. The real question is, does he still have it? Yes, it is. He does <laughs> seem to have cut all or most of his ties to the hardcore scene as Danzig started to get popular. So on that, I also got some notes 
that not only was Glenn a diehard in the like a fan of some of the Midwest hardcore, but he actually went and roadied for the Necros. Wow. Um, to some Boston shows up in like Northeast shows. So, uh, so yeah, really cool. Really so cool. He was way in. He was way in. And um, one, Roy Orbison, absolutely. Great call. Couldn't, yeah. couldn't. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of those things. As soon as I read that email, I'm like, how did I miss that one? You know what? I can't tell you the last time I listened to Roy Orbison, but it's it's like, oh yeah. And vocally there's a little bit more of that than you know, like there's the Elvis stuff for sure. But Roy Orbison maybe gets in there a little more you know, when I listen to a song like Angel Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> it's more Roy Orbison than Elvis, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh so so that's kind of interesting. Um gonna have to revisit the Black Flames uh record. Yeah, me too. So, uh, again, this was incredible. Great, great deep cuts. And, uh, yeah, shout out Danzig. (laughs) Cool. Shout out Danzig. Yeah. Um, All right. So, yeah, thank you, Dave, for all the the emails and all that stuff. We appreciate it. Um, Moving on. So the next one is still about the Misfits. So we're sticking on the Misfits. But this one is from um, friend of the pod, Larry Gargas. um, What's up, Larry? Yeah, what's up, Larry? Um, Akron, Ohio resident. Um, I think we've both known him for a, for a good amount of time. Um, very nice guy. And uh, here's what he had to say. So he said, while I'm an older dude, 47, yikes. I was still too young to have caught the misfits while they were around. I started taking ownership of music around the age of 12 or 13, which is around 85 or 86. They broke up in 83. Um, for me, I started to discover a wide variety of musical genres concurrently. I definitely started with Black Sabbath, but the dark intensity of that band blew everything wide open for, for metal as well as hardcore punk. The Misfits fit that criteria, even if their approach was a bit different. I love comic books and Vincent Price slash B-grade horror novels or horror films, so I was instantly hooked. I have an older cousin who was around for the first wave of hardcore, and it was through her records that I discovered the Misfits, among every other classic band of that era. I heard the horror business and bullet singles first, um, and she still won't part with either. Um, (laughs) But Walk Among Us was the recording that made me fall in love with the band. The standout tracks on that album are Astro Zombies, All Hell Breaks Loose, and Vampira. I love Vampira in particular. That song, along with Hybrid Moments and Children in Heat, are my top three for that band. Fair enough. Mm. Um, he says, To my ears, Walk Among Us was the best Misfits album prior to the release of Static Age in 96, which usurped its position at number one. And while I love Earth AD, um, Death Comes Ripping is a fucking banger. It is totally devoid of the melodies that made the Misfits special. Good point as well. Yeah. Um, I know there was some talk on the episode about Brain Eaters being the weakest track, and you guys aren't wrong, but Hate Breeders might be just as weak. Hate Breeders is just way too popular. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Um, Finishing up here, I think that the Misfits probably would not be relatable to kids in 2020 and wouldn't be in the hardcore punk starter kit like it was for me when I was first testing the waters. The world and music has changed. The shock, horror, and ferocity of the Misfits would be lost on most younger folks today, which is a shame because the Misfits had something that many of their peers from that era had. 
uh, character and an in identifiable sound that couldn't be mistaken for anyone else. True. Many bands from other eras, certainly not all lack those qualities. And then he finishes up by saying, but I digress. I'm not here to shit on younger bands and the kids that are into them. I'm just saying that I might try to find something more current for the starter kit, particularly since there is still a lot of great music being made. Now let younger people take ownership of bands that they can relate to and then work backwards for context. Mm. Very well said. Yeah. Very well said. Um, yo, first, thank you. Incredible message. Um, I think I love the connection from here. Someone who loved comic books, Vincent Price, B-grade horror films. Yeah. Who sunk their teeth in where, where we have the other message from Dave saying like, Hey, some of that stuff, he was gone was too deep, but yeah, like, no, definitely. As, some, as someone who, who's not, I'm into comic books, but I'm not super, I'm not B, B horror movie fan. Certainly not to this level. The people in that interest group, just uh knee deep they're not they're stepping right in that puddle so they love all the deep cuts and and almost i think that parallel it almost drew it drew people in who were familiar immediately and people who might have had just kind of a surface level interest were like wait what's the what are these references and started digging themselves so that's kind of cool no, I love that. I love a band that like if if you get the references, you're going to be knee deep in it. Um, you know, and but that's the funny thing for me, like, and you know, not that I got into them in the 80s. I didn't. But, um, you know, I don't I don't know any of the references, really. Like when I think about it, um, most of that stuff is way over my head. I just like yep. them it's because, you know when I was coming up, that's what, you know, people were listening to. That was a big band that, you know, everyone that I knew was getting into. So um, really different experiences with the same band. You know, it's interesting. Oh, love it. Um, such a good point about earth AD because it's, it's, it is a great record. And like, let's, let's put that on our, our, like not in the next handful, but, but sometime in the not too distant future. Cause what I want to try to do, Pete is isolate it and listen to it on its own and think yeah. of it as a punk thrash record. And like, how does it hold up? if we were thinking of it, not as a misfits record, because he's so right. It's really lacks the character. It doesn't, it lacks the character and kind of form that made the misfits so special and unique. And that's not to say that it doesn't have character and form. It's just not the one that made the misfits who the misfits were. Exactly. It's just not as fun. It's not as no, the sing-alongs aren't there. The you know the like you said the melody isn't there. Hate breeders could bre- probably you could probably slice thirty seconds off that song. Yeah, easily. Yeah. Okay. Let's see this. Brain Hitters is still the worst song. Oh, no, no question, it's still the worst <laughs> song. I, I'm I'm trying to look up really quick. Hold on. I believe Hate Breeders is. Uh, Hate Breeders looks like it's yeah. You know what? Three minutes, nine seconds. We might be able to shave a minute and 20 off that. Easily. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's dead on about that. <laughs> um, and, and as far as like <clears throat> discovering, yeah, I think he's right. It's going to take a special type to be able to really connect with this. But maybe that's where we, we bridge the gap is there are still people who love, love the B movie horror stuff dig way way deep into it and they might 
find Walk Among Us. They might find Static Age. They might find some of this Misfit stuff, and it just clicks in instantly. Doesn't matter what year it is, and and I think that probably has been the same whether it was eighty six, ninety six, two thousand six, twenty sixteen. It clicks, but otherwise. <clears throat> They're maybe not the first band you drop into a 13-year-old's hands to connect with a whole genre of music. Yeah, yeah, true. Although I will say that, you know, a lot of that early early Misfits and, you know, Walk Among Us era, like, it's good music for a young kid, you know? I, like, I don't, I don't I, to Larry's point, I agree that there's plenty of good bands to get into, you know, current bands and all of this, but, like, I th- I feel like one of the reasons that I got into them at such a young age was because it was so sing-alongy and fun, you know. Absolutely. So I feel like there is something still there, but fun is yeah. such a good point about the Misfits. So they're not they're not in the hardcore punk starter kit in 2020, though. Yeah. So I don't think so. Okay. All right. So thank you, Larry. Um, last message here is from again from uh, our good friend Andy Kochman, um, and it's on the most recent. Bruce Springsteen episode. So he said, I'm listening to this pod with my wife doing a long drive and nodding my head along with everything you're saying, especially the part of not liking Springsteen when you're younger because everyone liked him. I remember when my brother went through this phase in his teens and I was an impressionable preteen looking up to him. He once said, quote, the concept of Springsteen is better than the execution. (laughs) Good Um, message. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, everybody who it is with messages we didn't get to. Um, maybe we'll pull some more together, and I'll, I'll try to be better about compiling mine, too. I apologize. Um, but I think this is a great point. One, when you're young and in New Jersey, you get exposed to Bruce Springsteen decently young. Yeah. Do you think you relate better as you get a little bit older? Yeah, I think so. I mean... But I think it can go both ways. I think that you can just grow up and listen to Springsteen your entire life and you know that's a thing that you do. But True. I also think that you can avoid Springsteen. I mean, this is just my own personal experience. You can avoid Springsteen for 20 years and then, you know, for whatever reason you want to dig in and then you 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 find things about it that are relatable or you know things that you like about it. So I think it can go both ways, but yeah, I mean, it sounds like my experience is my experience was similar to his you know, where it wasn't until later on that he really wanted to do that deep dive. Yeah. For me, Bruce Springsteen was like cheesecake. Um, yeah. Because I had cheesecake in passing as a younger person and, and certainly wasn't going to pass it up if it was there. And it was like, Oh, here's here. Dessert is cheesecake. But <laughs> If I had my options, I was picking chocolate cake or ice cream or brownie or, you know, apple pie or pumpkin pie or candy or, you know, any number of things. And cheesecake was kind of low on that list. And then at a little later in life, I was uh, I was traveling cross country with a friend and she said, she's like, oh, do you think do you think that this restaurant we're at has cheesecake? And I'm like, (laughs) I mean probably let's let's see and so you know she's like oh let's let's try this cheesecake i'm like sure and she's like oh did you want that i'm like you know no but but you know what i should give cheesecake more of a try like let's let's rock let's do this and it was awesome 
Yeah. And since then, it's kind of been, it's been in the wheelhouse. It's been in the staple. It's not, it's not, it hasn't, it hasn't supplanted chocolate cake. Um, but it gets mixed in and it's a nice option. And my appreciation for it is 10 times what it was before that, where it was just, you know, like you said, you, you hit an age, you, you give it more of a chance and you're like, Oh, this is cool. You know, um, I think born in the USA <laughs> for all of the things that we kind of picked apart and sounds that we're like, meh, maybe this, eh, a little too honky tonky. Eh. It's a really nice record. It's a fun one. It's a good, it's a good summertime record. It's a good driving with the windows down, arm out the window record. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's well, a the lot reason, to the it. Reason it sold a billion copies, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think literally it's uh, closing in on the bill. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's just really it, it's a it's a good fun record, and you know, I think that the concept of Bruce Springsteen being better than the execution. I think partially that's because the concept of Bruce Springsteen is so fucking good. And, you know, excuse me for, for getting in the curse word bag here, but it's too good. The yeah. idea of Bruce Springsteen. And then when you peel it apart and you, you dig into like the fact that born in the USA, isn't this giant, like, uh, you know, RNC anthem, you know, it's like, no, it's like dutifully respectful of the country and showing some love, but, but also critical. And, uh, and you go, damn, this dude's not just like cool. He's cool as hell. Like, yeah. whoa. Um, and, and I, I had a question for you because this came up in conversation. Um, you know, uh, an artist who I love, who we will not be featuring on this podcast unless we do some road tripping, is Neil Young. Okay. Love Neil Young. Same. I had never really thought about him in the same breath as Bruce Springsteen. And then I got to thinking about him, and uh, especially comparing some of Bruce's early work to some of his earlier solo material. Um, and then some of his twists and turns along the way. And, you know, Neil Young is not only someone who wrote great songs and was noted for it, but also had some hits, you know, Mm -hmm. um, keep on rocking in the free world is again, that's an arena song, but it's almost misinterpreted. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And not that far off from, born in the USA. But I've never put those two together and I almost think that's a good parallel. I think that Neil Young <clears throat> now their careers took what Bruce does post born in the USA is a divergence from that path, but it's not that different from like h- how in the opposite direction Neil Young at one point just is like, "Oh yeah, I'm just going to do the weirdest possible record you could imagine me doing. You yeah, know? exactly. I was going to say like Neil Young, had, like we were talking about the Melvins before. It's almost comparable in certain ways. Yes, it certainly is. And, yeah. and, and if you dig into some inside baseball, it almost feels like the same motives behind it because I'm pretty sure the Melvins uh, put out a record as a like, Oh yeah. Label who signed us, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is not very far off from, uh, 
good old Neil. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so I actually want to challenge people think about that because Neil Young noted songwriter, noted rock guitar, noted lyricist. And I think Bruce Springsteen should probably be held in that kind of light. Um, Oh yeah. And, 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 and kind of more comparison because like who's more popular, Bruce Springsteen or Neil Young uh, debatable at certain points, but I think at his height, Bruce Springsteen was more popular and more yeah. like recognizable. Yeah. But yeah, he, it, at the same time, Neil Young feels like he has more respect on his name than Bruce, you know? You think so? I don't I think I don't because know. he, because he didn't, because he has a quote unquote more credible legacy. Sure. You know, yeah. where, which is like, that's the only thing. It's like, but I don't think that we should be passing judgment on Bruce for a handful of late 80s records because I think largely he stayed very true to himself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I my feeling is like both of those guys are at a point in their career where everybody just kind of overlooks, you know, whatever kind of weaker oh, yeah. records they may have had and, you know, they're just kind of icons. You yeah, know? like their weaker records are respectively... 40 to 50 years old at this point. So, yeah, exactly. you know, 30 yeah. to 40 years old, maybe. Yeah. More. And like a new record will come out. And actually both of those guys have had records recently. that people have talked about more, you know, in the last couple of years than they ever, they have in a decade, you know, as far yeah. as I can tell, but are um, we ageist for not, not, not checking those records out? Uh, I, I checked out the Bruce records. I have not checked out like the very, recent neil records how was the most recent a lot of them how was the most recent bruce record um it was tough because i maybe we'll do an episode on it at some point sure um but my my capsule review is that it was better than any of the albums i've heard in probably 10 years but at the same time i feel like he's it felt a little bit disingenuous to me it felt like he was like kind of being the Bruce that people wants him to be at this point. Ah, see, ah. And that's like what it really rubbed me the wrong way. Just kind of like the vibe of it. Well, and that's where I get critical and I, I rarely enjoy when it feels like artists are being self-referential. Yeah. And, and kind of you, you put the, you put the nose on the clown there where you said they're being the person, they're being the artist people want them to be because then I can't tell if it feels like they're being authentic to themselves or they're not. And it's one of the marks of like pop music that gets me so grossed out is Mm -hmm. the like, Oh, you're trying a new sound because you're trying to market in a different way. And like, if the person writing the songs is the same person, does that matter in pop music? It's very different. Usually there's, you know, a writing team going, Oh, this is your, uh, pop country meets hip hop record, you know? Yeah. But with, with a lot of Bruce's material, I have to, I have to imagine he and the people he was writing with were largely the same on his acclaimed records as they were on his, uh, his, his more unfortunate ones. Um, yeah. You know, I say that there's not that much out there. There's a couple that I, that I'm dismissive of, but they're not, they're not terrible by any means. Um, so th- th- it's just, it's when the, the, the pendulum swings and they say, Oh, uh, you're trying to, it sounds like you're just trying to deliver what people want. And it's like, eh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'll say that I think, 
I don't know. Maybe I'll regret saying this. I, th- I think that Neil Young's worst records are worse than Bruce's worst records. I, but it's think- only because Neil Young like went further. Like he was, he was taking it to, he didn't give a fuck at certain points. It was just doing whatever he wanted to do, you know? So do you think he ever just shit out a record? Oh, sure. Yeah. That's the way I feel. I think he did. Dude, um, I mean, like, you can't you can't forget about Crosby, Souls, Nash, and Young era. Like, he was as big as it could get. And he you're was... You're totally right. Yeah, and he would, like, you know, whatever... He he basically, like, I don't know. I'm, I, don't, I don't know the full story, but it certainly seems like he had full creative control in terms of what he was putting out and what he was doing. Yes. You know, and he, he would drop into Crosby Stills Nash crew, you know, if he felt like it, you know, they would sell sell a million more tickets if they had him, you know, so they knew that they needed him, but he knew that they needed him too. So he would like play that game. You know I mean? He was like, he was like a master chess player. I feel like. Yeah. No, I, I think he, well, and I think there's certain parts of him, his, his most introverted and like, almost self-satisfying it seems material or at least on a surface level is the stuff that I feel resonates the most but that can sour because he goes so far into himself that it's like well I'm just going to make whatever I want and it's like no don't do that you're making (laughs) weird noise records what's going on Um, so what are we are we saying is Tunnel of Love the Bruce Springsteen <laughs> basement? Oh, not at all. No? Not at all. Okay. No. The basement in terms of like the worst? Yeah, the worst. Oh, no. I, but I'll here's stand, is it the least? One. Oh, okay. All right. So um, Human Touch? It has to be one of those records like- It's in, right there. No, no. It's like, I would say later. It's like in the mm-hmm. 2000s. Like okay. Something okay. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean- Something like Magic is like, uh, just yeah, like, like right. one oh, track. Right. Okay. I mean, Ghost of Tom Joad is this weird return where he kind of got a little greedy, grittier, a little more sparse, and that was sort of like well-received. Do you remember that record at the time? I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that and, one, you know. But that's just like, it's not, yeah, we can get into it, but it's not, yeah, I don't love it. You don't love it. That's fine. I mean, let me look at, I want to look at this, the Seekers. Like, he got the E Street Band back, and yeah. there's tracks here and there. Like, every Bruce record has one oh, or yeah, two tracks. The, the Rising, the, see, but The Rising is weird to me. I haven't listened to this as a record in a very long time, like likely near the release of it. Um, you know, that's probably a lot of people's like favorite Bruce album. I know it is. I mean, yeah. I think it might be, I mean, I think my mom loves this record Yeah, and she's not even it. from New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> that's so even weirder. I, yeah, I know. I think this might be a good place to cut it. So, yeah. uh, so yeah, yo, thank you again to everyone who hit us. Thank you for the deep reads that we went into, and it was kind of fun to explore that. Uh, we encourage everyone to, of course, give us five-star reviews on iTunes. Um, please subscribe, follow, all that good stuff to It Came From NJ Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, and send us emails. Pete, where do they do that? Um, it came from njpod at gmail.com. Cool. So yeah, keep it coming. And uh, sorry about no yellow tango, but we will cover that next week. Yeah, get in there. Uh, hit us with your comments in advance and uh, 
talk to you then. Cool.